Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me today is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today was introduced to us by the Canadian Real Estate Forums. This is part of their Canadian Apartment Investment Conference that is going on right now. The guest today is Mark Goodman. He's the principal of Goodman Commercial and publisher of the Goodman Report. He's got a long intergenerational history in Vancouver, specifically in apartments. This has been part of some of the largest transactions in that market. We're excited to welcome him to the podcast today. Welcome, Mark. Hi, thank you for having me. So Mark, we always start off with the guest history and yours goes back quite a while in this asset class. So jump in where you think it's interesting. We'd love to hear your backstory. I grew up in a real estate household. Ever since I was a kid, I was exposed to Vancouver real estate. My father started the business. He cut his teeth as a residential realtor back in the 70s. My aunt also was involved in real estate and a lot of family friends and associates were also in the real estate industry. So I was exposed to real estate from a very young age and I have a lot of fond memories looking at properties with my father overhearing conversations in the old days when people would call you on your home line after dinner because there was no cell phone, internet, email. So there was just a work line and a home line. And so the phone would start ringing at six o'clock as a residential realtor. We all know you're on all the time. And I was able to, I guess, through osmosis, pick up various aspects of the real estate business that I guess helped me in my career today. Too bad you guys didn't pick a city that experienced a little bit of growth over the last 40 years. Yeah, too bad, hey? I think Vancouver really has come into its own. I would argue it's a world-class city right now, although we have some land use policy challenges right now. But it's been an amazing experience to watch the city grow and be involved in that growth. And I guess my earliest memories was watching my father write on a pad of paper the Goodman Report. This is before there were computers. When I used to walk into the office as a little kid in the early 80s, mid-80s, there was typists. The cut and paste was literally cutting and pasting like the marketing packages would have a Kodak picture literally taped to a document. And there was a room full of typewriters and he would smoke his cigar and chomp on a cigar and cut deals all day long on rotary phones. It was a totally different world. And so I was exposed to that as a young kid and watching him write the newsletter. And it was truly a family business. When I was young, we would sit around the dining room table to stuff envelopes. This was the Goodman Report. And we would have my grandparents over, my brother, my mother, even the cleaning lady was coming over and we'd sit around the table and we would stuff the Goodman Report. And in those days, remember, there was no central area to get information. There was no internet. There was no email, pagers, cell phones. It was old school. And so the only way to market properties back in those days was by picking up the phone or the Vancouver Sun. You'd put a classified ad and you'd say, I have an apartment building for sale. And And so there was a vacuum of information. And so he started, back then it was called the Apartment Newsletter. And then it evolved and was rebranded as the Goodman Report. But he was the only one at the time, and truly a pioneer, providing advice on 
all things rental apartment buildings. I mean, even back in the 80s, the same challenges that we face today, political challenges, the rising expenses, the affordability concerns that we have, land constraints and so forth, those issues have been going on for a long time. And we are operating in a very politically charged environment. And so he was writing about the economics of owning an apartment building, the human element of owning an apartment building, the characters that we deal with all day long, financing, property management. But he also was able to take a position that many other stakeholders in the industry could not take because of political constraints or optics or conflict of interest. And he could really speak his mind and speak truth to the challenges that the rental industry faced. And so he became a voice of reason. He became an advocate for apartment owners. I mean, even today, developers and landlords or housing service providers is maybe a more politically correct word, often are vilified. And my experience and his experience is that the people that we work with and the people that we deal with are very empathetic people who are providing safe, affordable housing. And yes, it's a profit-driven model. That's how the world works. And so he spoke about these challenges. And today it's evolved into a multi-channel marketing platform that provides news and views and it's a very data-driven report. But the beginnings, it was a very humble beginnings where even before he got into the apartment business, he started in the residential. He was selling single-family homes in Richmond and Shaughnessy, breaking into those markets. And he did it by literally door-knocking and dropping off newsletters through the mailbox. And that's how he started. And over time, we've evolved. And I decided to get into the business in my early 20s. I have a degree from UBC in psychology and I did various marketing jobs. I worked at the Jim Pattison Trade Group, which was an import-export company for a year, and then decided to join my father in the business. And that was nearly 19 years ago. And now we've grown and have our own company, Goodman Commercial. And I became partners with Cynthia Jagger, who was a director of Altus Group. They're a national appraising firm. She specialized in land and apartment buildings. And so it's been four years or so that we've partnered and We just hired another realtor and we're expanding. We're busier than ever. And so it's been quite a ride. Well, just to highlight, I guess, the growth in your market from your first impressions as a young boy to now, we use a couple of different metrics. One would be the distribution number, like how many envelopes were you stuffing back then versus when you hit send in an email now. Maybe we could do valuations on a per unit basis, what departments are going for back then versus now, just to show how much it's shifted. I mean, this is not a visual format, but even if we showed the skyline of Vancouver, it would look very different sure. in those time frames. But we'll do the next best thing, which is an audio telling of it. Well, those are really good questions. And I think it'll highlight how static until recently our rental universe has been. There are roughly 3,300 purpose-built apartment buildings in the city owned by roughly 2,200 groups or individuals. And that number hasn't really changed much. And again, that's sort of what we're talking about through the Goodman Report is this need to increase our rental stock. And it's finally happening now, albeit not fast enough. So from when I started, and even when my father started, the number of purpose-built rental buildings hasn't really changed because most of the buildings were started in the 50s and petered out in the early 70s. And since that time, there's been very little rental apartment building or purpose-built rental construction. When my father started, he actually sold 
his first building in 1978. It was a 20-suite rental apartment building. It was a walk-up owned by the legendary real estate mogul Nelson Scalbania. So he sold this West End building for $460,000. That was in 1978. Well, that's what each unit costs right now. So 40-odd years later, valuations have certainly increased, but the amount of rental buildings in the city really hasn't increased that much. And when I joined nearly 19 years ago, I remember prime West Side real estate. So areas like Fairview or South Granville, the West End, Kitsilano, they were trading at $80,000 a unit at a 6% cap. Average rents for a one bedroom, I remember, were $750 for a one bedroom. Expense ratios, which we don't use anymore, were 33% of effective gross revenue. And it was like that for a couple of years. And so that was the early 2000s. I started in 2002. And then we had this runaway on values and pricing, and it just kept going. I would use the word, it just exploded for a number of different reasons. And so the mid-late 2000s were extraordinarily busy, and the internet was just starting to be used to market properties. We were the first to actually have an email marketing system. We were the first to post our listings online for commercial real estate and have photo tours. And so we've always tried to be sort of pioneers when it came to marketing rental apartment buildings. And now today, the playing field has been leveled and you can receive all this information online and view all this marketing material and data. We didn't have all the third-party service providers that we have today for market research and data. And now it's become a very sophisticated more competitive environment. And so we're operating in a different environment right now where information is readily available. But back then, there weren't that many sources to find information. I'm curious, maybe just to paint a picture of what your day-to-day looks like. And let's pretend it's not COVID. Let's assume it's January 2020. Like, What keeps you busy? What are you spending your time doing? Because you've got the report, which sounds data intensive and a large marketing initiative, but you've also got sort of the regular business. So how do you spend your time? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because the role that I have is very diverse. On one hand, I'm running a company and managing staff. And there's a lot of administrative stuff when you're running a company and hiring people. And so that takes a bit of my time, although I've been able to offload a lot of it with hiring, managing brokers and conveyance and accounting. The majority of my time, I would say it's split. There's a lot of business development. I'm speaking to clients. I'm taking calls. A lot of the calls are people wanting to hear what's happening in the market, asking for advice, come look at my apartment building. A lot of my time is actually meeting with clients, touring buildings, writing proposals, writing the newsletter, writing articles. Every day is different. A lot of the time I have multiple meetings during the day everything from planning our next newsletter to our next marketing initiative to negotiating a large transaction. And when people say, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a commercial broker, but some days I feel like I'm a psychologist. Some other days I feel like I'm a punching bag. It can be high anxiety, intense environment. Very rarely is there a moment of calm. I would typically say Christmas day and maybe a couple days in the of the summer, things are a little bit more relaxed. But generally, my day starts at 6.37 in the morning, checking emails and responding to emails that came in later at night to 
hitting the office around 8.30 in the morning. And I probably have four or five meetings during the day with my staff and my partners and my colleagues planning our day. And you have to know how to pivot very quickly because things change dramatically hour by hour, minute by minute in this industry. And so I'm trying to create an environment where there's a semblance of calm. I don't know if that's possible, but I'm working toward it. It's just, I guess we're victims of our own success. We keep producing and pushing out because it's in our nature. And it's a very rewarding job, but like anything, it can be a grind, but we're having fun. And I think that's important is to be successful in this business. You have to have a bit of levity in your life. You have to be able to take the rejection. And I would say that the personalities in this business are intriguing. I mean, there's all different types of people you're dealing with and heightened emotions, particularly when you're dealing with large amounts of money and you are there to stick handle large transactions, which have huge repercussions And so it can be stressful at times. And I think what we've tried to do and instill in our staff and our colleagues is to try to have balance in your life. And we don't believe in 12-hour workdays with no lunch. That's just not healthy for anybody. And so we're advocates of having balance in the office and being able to relax and recuperate from an intense week. Over the weekend, we try to shut things down, although it's become a bit more challenging lately. Yeah, when you mentioned rapidly changing environment, I was thinking more pointedly so since March, of course. You mentioned some large transactions, and I'd love to get into those in a little bit. But I'd like to touch on you know, an earlier part of your career. You know, at some point, you were green to real estate, and you've evolved, obviously, into a leader in your field. But you also have the somewhat unique situation of the family dynamic. I mean, real estate has historically had a large intergenerational element, but most people don't have that transition through the generations of a, yeah. you know, a real estate brokerage. So can you kind of describe over the years how we worked with family and shifted coming from a green, young, new real estate practitioner to where you are now? When I was in university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I got an arts degree in psychology. And then as time went on, I realized, you know, I wouldn't mind blending marketing and sales and business. I just didn't quite know where I wanted to go. And I worked on Howe Street in a boiler room for a few months until I figured out that it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. But I had some exposure in in securities in the stock market and working at an export-import company, the Jim Patterson Trade Group. And when I joined my father, I started off very much green and I just learned through osmosis. I remember I'd sit in the office and just listen to him on the phone. For the first year, I was essentially shadowing him, learning. And there's nothing like a lot of experience to help expedite your learning process. I mean, he'd been doing it for a long time and had always been a leader in the industry and really helps where you have a partner you can trust. A lot of people are surprised, how can a father and son work together for so long? But we worked really well together. Uh, Of course, like any family, you have your trying times, but there was a mutual respect and understanding of what we were trying to achieve. And like I clearly remember my first day walking into the office. It was actually my birthday almost 19 years ago. And I walked into the office and I remember at that time, my father had just got a computer. Like he was old school. And what do I need a computer for? I got someone to send my faxes. And I was like, you know, dad, we should really get a website. He says, ah, what do I need a website for? People know who I am. But that was sort of the mentality back then. So I joined and I loved internet and marketing and I could see the power of the internet and what it could do for a business. And 
So he showed me to the office. He said, here's your computer. Here's your phone. Here's your chair. Welcome to the business. And like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. And he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Your first task is I want you to call this guy at Collier's International. He's a competitor of ours. His name is John G. And I want you to call him and I want you to get a sales package and the financials for such and such property in the West End. So I said, okay. So I pick up the phone and I dial John G at Collier's and I say, hello, John. This is Mark Goodman calling. I am a commercial realtor at McDonald Commercial because that's where I worked at the time. And I was hoping you could send me an information package on this property. And so John says, there's quiet. There's no response. And after a few seconds, he says, hello, Mark Goodman, sales associate from McDonald Commercial Real Estate (laughs) Services. You forgot to ask me the most important thing. And I said, what's that? He said, you forgot to ask me if I'm cooperating. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I said, well, are you cooperating? And he says, no. And he hung up on me. And that was it. So that was my first five minutes into the business. So I walked down the hall and I was like, dad, what's cooperating? He goes, "Uh uh-huh. Well, let me tell you. And really, that was probably the most important lesson that I've ever had in this business is there's no reciprocity in the commercial world. There's no cooperation, at least amongst the people that I work with. There is one fee. There's one commission structure. And if there's a buyer on the other side, they'll collect their own fee from their client. And that's actually that system. I think it's probably a better system. And it's how a lot of other real estate organizations and countries around the world operate. We have a very strong MLS system here where there's cooperating on either side. But in our world, you got to work for everything. You got to work hard. And our mantra has always been to get listings and to have control of product. And that's where we excel is we're very good at marketing properties and generating interest and exposure. And that's why we're successful is that clients trust our ability to get the word out, to package it properly, negotiate properly, and write good contracts. And you need to have all those skill sets to be successful. And so as a kid, you learn how to deal with rejection. You learn how to write proper contracts. You learn how to write properly in marketing. And David, my father, did not have white glove service like these large corporate national firms have. We did it all ourselves. Everything that we did, we built by ourselves. And we've evolved today where I have full-time staff and designers and database management and But I still, I write my own contracts. I'll do my own data entry. I open my own envelopes. We still, to this day, do a lot of things that other brokers would outsource because we are obsessive about quality control and we don't like letting go. And, you know, in many cases that could be to our detriment, but that's how we roll. How many times, Mark, do you sit in front of a private property owner who has similar philosophy? I don't want to call it a sales pitch because that seems to sort of diminish what you're talking about, but where you can relate to that landowner, to that apartment owner, more so than just another broker or another agent in a brokerage, right? Well, I would say that we don't win all the time. We have formidable competition, but I think that we've carved out a unique proposition of how we work and how we operate. 
And I think our philosophy and the way we do business resonates with a lot of people, which is why we're probably the number one multifamily sales team consistently in Metro Vancouver. Some people don't, I guess, stress the importance the way we do. Often we win the battle and lose the war when we're dealing with clients where we will give them the straight goods and tell them what we think value is. Whereas some of our competitors may inflate the price to gain the business. We call it buying the listing. And it happens when someone calls and you're competing against five or six groups. And is it going to be the highest number that gets the business? Is it going to be the lowest commission fee that gets the business? But we have found a lot of the time cutting fees or inflating prices, I think, gets old very quickly. And I think that most apartment owners, what we write about and how we market information, whether it's from the design of our brochures to our web presence online to just doing this a long time, the most important thing is that we are very results-oriented. And we get the job done. And I think that is the most important philosophy that we have is that we're going to fight right to the end for our client. And that's what they want to hear. And that's what we do. So we actually do better in a tougher market, to be honest, especially now during COVID, where there's a lot of unknowns and uncertainty, there is a flight to safety. And that means hard assets, apartment buildings, and to people that they can trust. And we've been doing this since the early 80s. We've been around marketing apartment properties. And we have all these fancy tools today. We have the best web presence in the market. We have 50,000 subscribers to the Goodman Report. We have 30,000 connections on LinkedIn. And so we have this exposure that the national firms can't compete with. And this idea of being a national firm and having offices around the world, this brick and mortar idea does not work anymore. A lot of these national larger firms, the guy down the hall doesn't know that apartment buildings listed. Our philosophy is transparency. And a lot of the times people don't readily supply financial information or it's call for price or they won't cooperate. And when I talk cooperate, I mean, they won't even let me on the property. So it can be a very adversarial environment at times. And that's just the nature of this business because it's, there's not a lot of supply out there. There's a lot of players that want to get in but it's hard to compete. It's a small space. And so I don't know if I've answered your question. I kind of no, rambled no, on no, there a little no, bit. No, 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 no. That's all very interesting, Mark. So don't apologize. But well, I probably relate to that before you get off of Mark. Have you ever had the chance to hang up the phone on John G in return in the last 19 years? <laughs> ah, good question. I, yeah. So he's no longer in the business, I understand, but I have spoken to him a few times and he was a formidable competitor before I joined and he was one of the apartment guys. And so it's not like you're best friends with your competitors. Let me put it that way. When John G. wins, Goodman loses and vice versa. You eat what you kill. So it can be a very stressful, competitive, adversarial business at times. And that's just the nature of what we do. It's pure capitalism at its finest. And the cream rises to the top, I guess you could say. (laughs) Mark, let's move on a little bit to just the Vancouver market. I want to just talk about some of the big transactions you've been involved with and just some of the metrics. I think people would find that interesting. But I also want to talk about just sort of the regulatory headwinds you're feeling now in Vancouver. So why don't we start kind of a little bit before some of the regulations have come through and just talk about what the market looked like, where valuations were, where cap rates were, and some of the biggest transactions that were occurring. Sure. Well, I would say that as of early, say, 2019, the market was 
really hot. We were selling apartment buildings in the low 2% cap rate range. And say for, I'll just use like good East Vancouver, West side apartment buildings. So let's say Maine and 14th neighborhood, Kitsilano, South Granville. Properties 2018, late 2018, early 2019, were trading anywhere from say four seventy-five dollars to $550,000 a unit. And people didn't understand how could someone buy a building at a low two cap. And really, they were buying future potential, which could be realized actually quite quickly just through renovations. And so, again, this is a lot of legislation has changed to stop this practice of renovating buildings and evicting tenants. And I would say that the media has really pushed this narrative that every building that trades and every landlord's evil and they're evicting and throwing tenants on the street. That's farthest from the truth. That is just simply not the reality. Yes, there have been a few bad apples. For sure, unscrupulous investors, landlords that have gone in and just evicted tenants for the wrong reasons. But I would say the majority of these buildings are 50, 60 years old with water ingress issues and leaky pipes and mold and environmental concerns. And the list goes on and on. And You just can't maintain these buildings without going through a retrofit program, which 99% of the time necessitated tenants leaving the building. And like I said, this was the exception, not the norm. But what happened was the rules changed and the NDP came into power and their mandate was to cool the real estate market. And they did that through many different ways and policies. And so What happened in late 2019 as a result of this, the value-add buyers that were buying properties and repositioning them through renovations and increasing rental rates, sometimes up to 125%. We saw legacy tenants and rents at $750 a month being pushed to over $2,000 with a renovation program. But it became much more difficult, that type of program. And so those properties that were trading in the low 2% cap rate range, anywhere from $500 to $550,000 a door, after a few months toward the end of 2019, those buildings were trading at a 3% cap. And so there was, in those good west side, east side locations, there was a 20% drop per unit for these buildings. So what was trading in 500, 550 a door was trading 400 to 450 a door. So we're talking around a 3% cap. It hit that sort of market harder, the buildings that had already been renovated or newer purpose-built buildings where there wasn't this delta between market rates and the current rates in the building, that didn't experience such a dip in value. But now today, we're actually seeing a resurgence in value in many pockets because financing, I just got a quote from a colleague of mine who's a mortgage broker, five-year money, CMHC insured, 1.1%. I mean, That is insane. 10-year money at 1.6% CMHC insured. The problem is today is that it takes at least 90 days to get funding. So a lot of the private guys that need a long time are being pushed out. And the institutional money where they don't need a bank mandate can actually follow through in 30 days. So the market shifted. My feeling is that the supply, demand, and balance that we have in Metro Vancouver, it's not going anywhere. Ironically, all these policies that are put in place actually do the opposite of we want, which is to encourage the development and maintenance of apartment buildings. It's having the opposite effect, and this is an ongoing challenge, which we write about in the Goodman Report. 
And so because of this slow trickle of new purpose-built buildings, it takes four to seven years to get a building up. That's insane. And so there's so much pressure on the existing rental stock that rental rates will continue to go up and the vacancy rates will continue to go down. And this supply-demand imbalance is recognized all over Canada. And that's why everybody wants to invest in apartment buildings. And so I think until we solve the supply problem and stop focusing on demand side measures, this is going to keep on continuing this type of escalation in value and rental rates. And so, yeah, I would say there was a period where we saw cap rates increase. But since COVID, I sold a property on Main and 14th to a public company at a 1.6% cap. I mean, they're buying a property that has amazing future potential and on natural turnover, they will increase the rent. So they're playing the long game. They're not evicting people. They're not throwing anybody on the street. They're just going to wait for natural turnover. So that's sort of the play right now. We have long-term money entering to the market. We are seeing a renaissance of sorts of new purpose-built buildings. We've sold many of those on a forward sale basis or newly built. Typically, those buildings are trading at a 3.75 to a 4% cap. In return, the investor is getting a turnkey building with no deferred maintenance with rents at market, but they're going to pay more for it. So a lot of these buildings, legacy tenants, the rents are buck twenty-five, a buck fifty a square foot, and we're selling buildings closer to four dollars per square foot. And the newer buildings are trading five hundred and fifty thousand dollars a door, for example, and the older buildings are selling in many cases under three hundred thousand. So it's almost like we have two different asset classes. We've got these fifty-six-year-old inefficient wood frame uh, apartment buildings. Many of them are total. Sh- boxes, excuse my French, that should be raised. And then we have beautiful, concrete, nicely appointed uh, apartment buildings with dishwashers and in-suite laundry and all the amenities that tenants demand today to compete with the condo market. It's like a tale of two asset classes, I guess you could say. It's definitely one of real estate's favorite words being bifurcation. You hear it from all the smart people. So I like to use it to make myself sound smart. <laughs> but there's actually one other regulatory issue I wanted to ask you about just to timestamp this with September 15th. And there was a recent announcement about a rent freeze for I guess the next year due to COVID-19. What's the word on the street? What are people saying about that? The building owner reaction to that? I mean, certainly it's been an issue, particularly when it's coming down to subject removal and the client says, wait a second, I just heard they're going to have a rent freeze and they've done it in Ontario, I believe. Is that right? Yes, correct. 18 months, is it? I think it's just for the year of 2021, but I could be wrong. Yeah, that's a concern for sure. I would say the bigger concern is vacancy control. I think, first of all, we're in a very trying time. People are losing their jobs Families are being stressed, and they're stressed not just for the tenants themselves who are losing their job, but for the landlords. I mean, let's think about what's happening here. Mortgage rates, our insurance costs are going through the roof. We have an insurance crisis right now. My clients are telling me that they're getting hit 80 to 90% higher in insurance costs than they were a year before, and the deductibles have increased as well. Taxes are going through the roof. Many of my clients are being taxed on land use policies that they can't even realize. So we have those issues. These buildings are falling apart, many of them, and they can't keep up. I mean, they've restricted rent increases. I think we're just above 1% for 2021. And so we have all this pressure on landlords who, again, are spending all their time and resources to deal with 
tenants who can't pay their rent because of job losses. It's an awful situation that's happening and it's impacting housing service providers who have the same stress as the tenants and it's financial stress, it's family stress, it's health concerns, it's anxiety, depression, all those things that everyone's experiencing right now. And so how do we solve this problem? How do we keep these landlords above water? A lot of them spent hours and hours on the phone trying to get mortgage deferrals and dealing with their tenants and trying to help them out. And so a rent freeze, I think, would be an additional challenge. Is it the right solution? I'm not going to comment on that. I just don't know because you have to look at both sides of the situation. But I'll tell you what the biggest concern is. It's vacancy control. That would be a disaster and the death knell of the rental industry. And it would hurt tenants more than anybody. And that's being advocated by Jean Swanson, one of our counselors here. I feel that she does not have the correct perspective and understand the economics of our industry. I think it'll work against everybody in our community. And that's the biggest challenge. And that's the biggest concern that I hear from landlords right now. That I mean, the rent freeze, if it happens, hopefully it won't be too long. But I guess we have to balance that with what's happening in Canada and you know our infection rates going up and hopefully we don't have another lockdown. Just for those listening that may not know or be familiar, vacancy control would be in the event that a tenant leaves a unit, that landlord currently as it exists, I think across the country, they're able to rent that vacant unit at whatever market would be available. With vacancy control, they would be allowed only to rent that unit at a certain percentage above the existing rent of that tenant that recently vacated. So again, just putting downward pressure. So I think politically there's motivation because it would protect new tenants entering a building. If you've got a rent at a unit that is already below market, new tenants would access that below market rent. However, what it does ultimately, unfortunately, is when new units come online or being rented at the very beginning, now landlords are motivated to get the absolute maximum rent early on. And so unfortunately, ultimately would likely result in even higher rents in the marketplace. Exactly. I mean, you nailed it. So it's very politically expedient for our civic politicians to espouse this philosophy and idea of vacancy control. So you protect a few, but what you're doing is you're hurting the majority of tenants because who's going to want to be in the landlord business? Who's going to want to invest in their buildings when they can't recover their costs? Who's going to want to develop our needed rental stock? when you have these restrictions. So there has to be a value proposition for people to invest in rental housing like any industry. And if you're taking that incentive away, what's going to happen is exactly what's happened in other cities around the world. There was one economist who said, the only thing worse than a nuclear bomb going off in your community is vacancy control. It will devastate our community. To be fair, I have certainly heard a number of municipal politicians just referencing that that's a potential. At least fortunately, I hear that typically cooler heads or level heads prevail. And we've got some great organization in the real estate community, organizations like RealPAC, who have really out there lobbying on behalf of all different facets of the real estate community, making sure that all levels of government understand the implications of some of the potential regulations and laws that they're contemplating. We're running out of time. Let's leave that. Let's get to something a little bit more, I guess, lighter, for lack of a better word. You've been fortunate enough to participate in some very large transactions. And so maybe pick the one that you find the most interesting and just kind of talk through maybe procuring that particular mandate and then what the process was going through the sale. Look, we've sold everything from 
$300 million single property transactions to, I sold a building for $1.7 million last year. We do it all. I wish I could say that I sell $50 million concrete high rises every week. I don't. We don't have as many concrete towers as you guys have in Toronto. But actually, yesterday we sold a property that was listed for $50 million. We sold it close to the ask. In Richmond, that's a six or seven-year-old waterfront building on Riverport Road. So we're firm on that. On the lockdown, when COVID hit and BC was locked down on closing, we closed a $52 million deal, a concrete high-rise in the West End. On Butte Street, we sold a 220-unit purpose-built tower for $94 million in New West a couple of years ago. We're hitting some good deals. We sold low heat towers for around just under $100 million a few years ago. It was a four-story, four-tower concrete complex. So yeah, we're actively involved. Sometimes it takes a decade to get the business of your client. And with multiple proposals and other times, you'll do it off market in a week and everything in between. Some of these deals we've done fully listed with a marketing program and others were done off market with a phone call. And yeah, each one is unique. And what I can tell you that none of them have been easy. <laughs> but that's, that's why you like sure. it. That's why you stick around, right? Well, you stick around because I have no idea what else I would do. I don't know if I have a skill set to do anything else right now. I've been doing this for almost 19 years. And I think what's interesting about our business is like you really do not know how your day is going to unfold minute by minute hour by hour. And like I said, I can be dealing with a 95-year-old lady who likes to talk and wants to tell me about her grandchildren and I'll have to spend an hour with her on their phone and hopefully we'll do a deal. And other times it's strictly business and I'm a punching bag and get it done Goodman and don't come back to me until you have paper. So I think that's what keeps it interesting. Our philosophy is to give it 100% whether I'm selling a 10-suite apartment building or I'm selling a $100 million portfolio. We give everybody the same attention and the same quality of service. And you have to do the bread and butter stuff in order to get the big trophy deals. And often, actually, the bigger deals are a little easier than the mom and pop smaller deals. When someone gives yeah. you a shoebox and says, here are the financials, and you got to put it together. And I say, well, what's your hydro and your gas bill? They're like, well... It's around this. And maybe there was an oil tank on site, but I'm not sure. But we dug it out and we dug out some oil. And I'm like, well, did you have an environmental report? No, no. But just tell them it's probably clean. Like, and other times they don't have tenancy agreements and they'll give me a napkin that had some type of verbal agreement from 15 years ago. And here's our contract. So it's all over the map in this business. As Adam and I have lenders, I can sympathize because it's sometimes a very similar experience dealing with legacy owners that have similar approaches. It is interesting that sometimes the big institutional investors are a lot easier or big institutional landlords are a lot easier to deal with, but, and sometimes not. Sometimes they like to yell more. It really depends. Mark, thanks so much for spending the time, giving us some insight into your world, talking about the Vancouver marketplace. Very, very interesting. So I want to thank you again for taking the time. And a reminder to our listeners, Adam and I are going to digest the conversation in our after show immediately following this conversation. I would, of course, like to thank First National for powering the podcast and a reminder that you can catch the Canadian Department Investment Conference today and tomorrow, the 15th and 16th of September. Thanks again, Mark. Appreciate it. 
Well, thank you very much. And for those of you who are listening, if you want to get the Goodman Report, you can go online and subscribe on our website, goodmanreport.com. You'll get our listings, you get our sales, you get our research. Most importantly, you will get the Goodman Report where we rant on the market and we hold our politicians accountable. So thank you very much. We'll put a link in the show notes as well for anybody that didn't catch the address. You can just click on the show notes to be right there. I'm a subscriber myself and I do find it valuable. So I do encourage you to go check it out if you have any interest in that market. Great. And if anybody wants to buy an apartment building at a two cap, give me a call. I got something <laughs> special for you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I discussed the episode that just went down. That was an interesting take from Mark Goodman. I really like the different perspective that being plugged into real estate for most of your life in one market, and he specializes just in Vancouver. He doesn't like to get out of that market too much. What that can do for a presence, I thought it was an interesting counterbalance to the idea that you need to be part of a massive multinational corporation in order to have a presence anywhere. They're just in Vancouver and they do some monster transactions. You know how much I love hearing about large deals and the numbers he was rhyming off are very Vancouver in their size. Yeah, the $300 million sale, it was 100 units, right? Like it wasn't even even that many units. No, it was interesting. And I love those stories because you do hear so much of the CBs, the JLLs, the Colliers. And so when you've got sort of the family-owned, family-run, it's nice to hear that they're being successful still, not getting dissolved or absorbed or whatever. Adam, you're in that market and I've seen some of those transactions. Like, do those numbers make sense? He's talking about two caps and huge per door values. Like, is that your experience also? Yeah, it makes sense. But that's the only place where you don't flinch when you hear those numbers. When you talk about per unit valuations, we talk about cap rates, when you talk about the size of some of these deals. There is just another day in the office when you're talking about a two cap and any other market. If you're talking about two caps, all the people in real estate, there'll be a lot of chatter amongst the practitioners about it. But there is just standard. There seems to be no level or no new level of valuation that can give everybody pause. When I first started going to that market, which was a couple of years ago now, I got a great tour of the city from some people that were really plugged in. And yeah, I spent most of the car ride with my jaw on the floor just saying that sold for $220 million. And they're pointing at a small parking lot the size of a postage stamp in an okay part of town and your head kind of explodes. And now I've got the same callus built up as everybody else that operates in real estate in that market. It's just what it is. And Mark alluded to it. It's a world-class city and the demand's through the roof. And everybody, of course, knows about the physical constraints of trying to grow real estate in that market. And so, yeah, it makes sense when you're walking in downtown Vancouver, but nowhere else, not even Toronto, to be honest, doesn't make sense here either those numbers, but it does make sense there. Yeah, I was happy to hear he called something a $4 per square foot, which I remember when they were talking in BC about $4 per square foot rents. And in Toronto, like two and a half was still kind of the ceiling. And it was just like, wow, gobsmacked that they could ever achieve rents that high. I think Toronto's certainly caught up. And I'm happy to hear that they're not talking about $7 per square foot rents now that it's really leveled off. Because I've mentioned it so many times on this podcast about the decoupling between income and rents. And so it sounds like there is kind of a maximum gap between average income and what people will pay for rent. So that made me feel better. 
we were talking about this before we hit record on the after show. Why don't we go through some of the lingo? He was kind of going with some broker language and everybody knows Adam started off as a broker many moons ago. So why don't you just kind of explain some of the things he was talking about? Yeah, I assume most people probably do know what we were talking about, but just in case, there's some great stories that maybe a little context will be accentuated. The conversation about hanging up the phone after saying not cooperating, that just means I'm not splitting commission, meaning you're not going to be part of this transaction. So that's all the cooperating means. And he is right. In a market where people are not cooperating, that probably should be the first question because if the answer is I'm not cooperating, every other question you had really doesn't matter because at that point you're just making conversation. You're not going to be part of it. And you do see some cooperation, but it's usually like just major, major transactions. Is that fair? Or potentially when the vendor is maybe a partnership where they've got separate relationships? When does cooperation kind of occur? I'm not totally up to date in the current market. As you mentioned, there's been many moons since I was involved in that. But from my understanding from colleagues that I used to work with, it's actually generally more on the higher profile of sales where you might not see cooperation. If you're just plugging in your 20 plex onto the MLS, well, yeah, you're probably cooperating there. You're going to take the commission, split it up. You're going to have a bid date, receive offers, and off you go. I know that apartments in general over the last number of years probably seen less cooperation, and that was driven by the buy side being so strong. Why bother cooperate? You can run this listing. You can generate a big pile of offers to purchase it for your vendor on the submission date. So why bother cooperate? In other asset classes that may have been on fire, you would see more cooperation just in order to get a deal done. Or conversely, if you're in a very small market where maybe you're just not going to have a long line of buyers ready to go there, you might see cooperation as well. But it is a funny story, though. I did like that. And I got to say that getting hung up on on your first day in real estate it's probably a good introduction to real estate. You know, might as well get right to yeah. it. You're going to get hung up on sooner or later. <laughs> it's like ripping the Band-Aid off, right? Just yeah. do it. Yeah, don't wait for your second day. Have it on the first day. And then what about yeah. buying the listing? Yeah, so buying the listing is brokers will go and do pitches in order to win an upcoming sale. A vendor will talk to three or four groups and get proposals from all of them. So buying the listing is whichever brokerage just promises to get the most. I mean, of course, promising to get the most. There's definitely things brokers do to optimize a sale without a doubt. The good ones do add value without a doubt. But ultimately, you can't control the market. And so if you promise an amount higher than even your best efforts can get, it's called buying the listing. And then, of course, you get halfway down the road to the sale. The offers aren't quite what you promised in your initial pitch, but the deal closes. So it's called buying the listing. Since Mark was so open about discussing the industry, I will say there is one brokerage in particular famous for it. I will not say who it is, but at least in the Ontario market anyway, there's one brokerage very famous for it. So, And that's funny because I mean, it happens in lending as well, right? Because it's a similar kind of concept where a landowner wants to get financing and they'll go and talk to a number of lenders and you have to propose what you think the loan amount will be, what loan amount you think you can deliver, particularly when you're talking about CMHC financing, where of course in the apartment space where you're all subject to how CMHC underwrites and there are a number of lenders that will go in very, very aggressively to show that they think they can get the highest loan amount, even though ultimately it really more matters what CMHC thinks. I don't know, Adam, do you have any comments on that? <laughs> I mean, not any good ones, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it happens for sure. I mean, you know, we're all trying to make all parties happy. And at a loan in this case, you have two sides to a transaction. You've got a borrower and you've got the groups providing the funds for a loan and everybody's got to be satisfied in a transaction and there's a happy medium ground. And 
Yeah, over-promising and under-delivering is never a great business practice, and it's not what uh, you particularly want to engage in, so I try not to. Aaron, I want to ask you about Vancouver exposure. I know you've got a family story from <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. You know, we, were talking, we talked a little bit about valuations way back when, and so I want to hear about the Cameron family involvement in Vancouver real estate. I know the story, so I'm just prepping yeah. you for the audience. Well, like Mark, my family lived in, the, in BC and in Vancouver in the 70s and 80s and sold at what was perceived as the absolute peak ever of what the Vancouver real estate market will get to in 1985. And so it's three different pieces of real estate. It was a house in North Vancouver, a ski-in, ski-out chalet in Whistler, and like a little cottage over on Cultus Lake, which is sort of one of the nicer places to own some vacation property. And I think at the time, my father was looking at it going, this is amazing. We're getting out when the going's good. And I think in hindsight, they've now valued in the multiples of 10 since then, easily, maybe even more than that. So I think if my father is listening, I know he listens occasionally, I apologize for bringing up that memory because I know every once in a while, it probably haunts you in your sleep. (laughs) I mean, the good news about real estate is, you know, to be 100% accurate all the time. But yeah, if you were to look at the growth curve of Vancouver from 85 to present, there was definitely a little something left behind on that one. <laughs> Just a little. Yeah. <laughs> I like it also that it's such a great collection of such stereotypical Vancouver real estate. You've got a Whistler. North Vancouver. Uh, yeah. North Vancouver. Yeah. No, it's a great cross section of what you typically think of in Vancouver. Yeah. And going back to that time frame too, uh, 1978, that was the discussion on 480 for the 20 plex. And now, of course, here we are. That's the price per unit. I was born in 78. So. I've run that same course of action. That's the 20 times valuation since 1978. It's kind of mind-boggling in that market. It is very, very crazy what's going on in Vancouver. And COVID aside, we really didn't talk about COVID, but probably that's relief for a lot of our listeners that are probably overexposed to COVID conversations. And I mean, long run, Vancouver real estate is still going to continue to perform. It's still going to be very, very lucrative. And I don't think We didn't ask him about distressed sales, but I got to imagine there's basically zero. I'm assuming that like everywhere else in the country, it's still going strong as we kind of progress into the seventh month of COVID. One thing we should add is he talked about some CMHC financing and we'd be remiss not to mention it. He talked about 90 days for approvals from CMHC and it's it's probably a little bit more than that, probably more like 120 to 150 days. So just for those that are listening going, oh, 90 days sounds reasonable. It's longer than that. And he also threw out some interest rates and I was crunching the numbers on the five and the 10 year. The 10 year sounded right at 1.6% because that's about 60 over. So that would be a really, really aggressive spread over the Canada mortgage bond that we've seen in the marketplace. The five year, I'm not sure if that broker was reaching or not, or maybe there's a lender out there that we're not aware of, but sounded a bit aggressive. I'd probably say more like 1.3%. And for those of you that are keeping notes about where financing is in the industry, but yeah, certainly for the top end assets, and the top end locations, 1.3% for five years is not impossible. Anyway, I just well, that, thought we should clarify. I didn't want anybody calling me and like, hey, 1.1, you guys didn't challenge him on that, right? So <laughs> to that point though, these low interest rates is how you make a 1.6 cap work. We referenced that he sold a building during COVID at 1.6, which shows, as you said, that likely interest in the market is not diminished. And it is also how you make those kinds of deals works where you can get positive leverage with finance right now, even when you're buying at a sub two cap. Yeah. And I mean, again, if you're using a 30-year IRR or looking at a 50-year ownership horizon, it probably is irrelevant what you pay for it today, right? Well, interesting show on one of my favorite markets in the country, 
but definitely to have Mark back on at some point to talk about what's going on. It's always been a real interesting point for me. And I've enjoyed personally doing business out there for the last couple of years, but even prior, it's just such a fun market to watch because it is so unique. Thanks everybody for listening and look forward to the next one. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.